It's an honor to be here again at First Presbyterian Church. I uh, always look forward to having the opportunity to just be here and, and fellowship with you, but especially the opportunity to come and, and preach. Uh, I don't get a lot of those opportunities anymore, and uh, just being a, a regular old layman in uh, at First Baptist Church. But uh, I, I jump at any opportunity given, and, and Rob and I, as he said, have become good friends and, and uh uh, co-workers in the kingdom in, in our jail ministry at the Butler County Jail. Um, but we, uh, so I, I love the opportunity to be here and preach God's word to you today. And I hope that you will uh, be in prayer for me, uh, be ready to receive it as, as I bring the word today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 16 verses of Genesis chapter 4. And Rob asked me uh, a little while ago if I would be willing to fill in for him this week because he was going to be traveling uh, this week to, to see relatives for Thanksgiving. And, and uh, I, you know, it's, it's kind of that awkward time after Thanksgiving before Advent starts. And it's kind of no man's land as far as guest preaching goes, at least, because what do you preach on? You can't steal the preacher's thunder and start on Christmas before Christmas season gets started in earnest. And he's already preached on Thanksgiving, or maybe he didn't, I don't know. But uh, in either case, you don't, uh, you don't really know it's already happened or it's going to happen, and you can't uh, pick anything um, in particular with a theme, but I thought that given the fact that you guys have just spent, you know, the better part of a week with family and you've eaten together and you've talked politics together and you've enjoyed the time with your family, what better subject to talk about than killing your family member? So uh, we're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel today as we consider uh, this what I believe is one of the most significant stories in all of Scripture is significant uh, not because there's a lot said about it in Scripture, because there isn't, but it's significant because just like the rest of Genesis, and really Genesis, is, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, it sets the stage for everything else that happens in the rest of the book and really in the rest of the Bible. And so I find the themes in this text to be profound. I'm not going to be able to get to all of them because of the uh, significance of them and because of the time constraints. But I want to, um, to look at this text in as, as full a sense as we can and study it together today. Um, you know, and like I said, this coming on the hills of Thanksgiving, uh, I always uh, love the opportunity to get together with family on Thanksgiving. My boys asked me uh, the other day, what was my favorite holiday? And quite honestly, I like all of the holidays starting in November with my birthday on November the 10th. And yes, I did notice that you didn't say happy birthday to me on Facebook this uh, earlier this month. But starting in November, really with Thanksgiving and all the way through Christmas, I love this time of year. I love it for the season. I love it for what goes on with the, the different holidays. But my favorite holiday of all is Thanksgiving. It's a holiday that's kind of losing its importance. As Rob said this morning, it's, it's something that uh, doesn't get a lot of attention, but I love it. I love it because of the food. I love it because of the family. Uh, my family, the Skipper family, has this traditional hunt that we have typically done on Thanksgiving Day where we go and we terrorize the squirrels in the woods of Garland, Alabama before we go eat 
turkey with my grandparents. And we, we enjoy that tradition and the family get-together and all of that. But there's a lot of pressure in Thanksgiving. There's a lot of pressure for families as they gather together. There's a lot of pressure, especially for the person that is preparing the meal. And many of you know what that pressure is very intimately this week as you've struggled to get the yams that Susie likes and the, and the dressing that John likes. And you've tr- struggled to make everything just the way your family members want it. Well, I got to feel that pressure last year, and I got to feel it terribly as uh, Miss Frida and my mom both asked that I smoke a turkey for Thanksgiving uh, at their houses. And so I'd done that a couple of times before, and I and my parent, my mom particularly had enjoyed it. So I decided, well, I'll I'll do it the way I did it before. And what I did is I brined it. I don't know if y'all know how turkeys are typically prepared, but I brined those turkeys. And so I thought this time I'll brine it again. But usually I do it for eight hours overnight. But if eight hours works, then 24 hours has to work better. And so I put the turkey in the brine and I let it brine. And my mom was going to have her Thanksgiving on Thursday at at noon. And I would smoke it that morning, bring it, it'd be hot. And um, we started smoking early that morning. Uh, I uh, go for four hours, go and check on it. And I start to notice a hint of a smell that wasn't quite right. It smelled like turkey, rotten turkey, but it didn't, you know, I couldn't place it, what the smell was. So I I get finished smoking the turkey, I get it out, and it's literally one of those Clark Griswold moments, okay? It is this beautiful brown turkey. It looks perfect. I get it out, I put it on the platter, I'm going to go carve it, but that smell just keeps hitting me in the nose. And I take the knife and I start to cut into the turkey and the knife literally goes straight through the turkey without any resistance. The turkey in whole was a a collection of potted meat held together by turkey skin. It was nasty. I mean, you literally could take your finger and just scrape the meat off. I'm I'm sorry. I know it's before lunch. Um, It was a terrible effort. And it being right there at Thanksgiving lunch... My mom had planned for my turkey to be the centerpiece of the meal. I ran to Walmart, paid $130 for a whole ham, and saved Thanksgiving just in that one little brief moment. But you know that pressure. If you've ever had to prepare anything for Thanksgiving, you know the pressure. And that pressure is real because there's this expectation of this perfect family experience, right? There's this expectation that grandma and grandpa and dad and mom and all the sisters and brothers will be together and we'll all get along and we'll all give thanks and we'll go around the table and we'll talk about what we're thankful for and we'll talk about how we all agree on every subject that has ever been known to man and we will enjoy a wonderful, beautiful meal that was made the way Aunt uh, Aunt. Uh, Skipper way back when used to make it. It will be a wonderful time. And it never, 
ever ends up like that, right? It never works out like that. Whether you're preparing the meal or whether you're coming to avoid conflict or whatever the situation is, you know that your family really isn't perfect. And you know that there is really no such thing as a perfect family. But yet we expect year in and year out to have that perfect family experience. But what we forget is that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is corrupted by sin. That our own hearts are corrupted by sin and the world at large and the attitudes and beliefs and philosophies of this world are corrupted by sin. And so no matter how hard we try to make things right and to make them perfect and to make them go like they quote should, they don't ever end up like that. And the reason for that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And the first hint that things aren't going to go well for any family after them is found in Genesis chapter 4, our text that we're going to look at today. And I have one question that I want you to search in your own hearts as we look at this text today. A question I hope that you will ask yourself and answer today as we go through this story. And the question is this, are you seeking to appease God with your meager offering or acknowledge your deep need for His grace? As you come today to this beautiful sanctuary to worship the Lord God Almighty, are you coming today to appease Him, to bring a meager offering to Him, hoping that maybe this time He will accept you, this time He will give you a pass for what you did this week, this time He will uh, uh, let you into His holy presence. Maybe you're coming in some way to appease God today, or, you're, or, or are you coming in acknowledgement of your deep need for His grace and forgiveness and love. And I want to look at this text in two points. I want to see two things today in the passage. And that is, first of all, the first evidence of the fall. And secondly, the first act of faith. The first evidence of the fall and the first act of faith. Now, I'm not going to go verse by verse through this text today. I'm going to skip around a good bit. And we're also going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, if you want to go ahead and hold your finger there. But uh, we are going to take the major themes of this passage and consider them as we consider the first evidence of the fall and the first act of faith. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today in acknowledgement that, Lord, you are a God who confounds the wise. Lord, you take the paradigms of this world, the assumptions that we make about ourselves and our position before you, and you turn them on, our, on their heads. Lord, you make the wise seem foolish and you elevate the foolish as those who are in the family of God. Lord, we confess our deep need for you. Lord, we confess that first of all, we are not in the garden anymore. We are in the wilderness. We confess that we cannot just bring to you some tithe or some offering and expect your uh, obedient good gifts to come to us. 
but rather we come acknowledging that we need a covering. We need a sacrifice. We need forgiveness and grace. Father, I pray that you would give us ready hearts, that you would open our hearts to receive the gospel of Abel, the gospel of one who by faith trusted in the promise that was to come. Father, that you would allow us to repent of our tendency towards Cain and help us to run from that into the arms of a loving Savior. Father, give me the strength to preach the gospel as you would have me to. Father, may I speak clearly. May I speak words of grace and peace. And may those who hear it be changed. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's read together Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and then we'll look at these two points. Now Adam knew, his, uh, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will, it not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So the first thing that I want you to see from the text is the first evidence of the fall. Now, when we first read about Cain, we, we could almost get the sense of hope that Eve has about this firstborn son that she has just born. And you get the idea, particularly in, in verse 1, uh, notice it says, Now Adam 
knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. There is joy there. There is excitement. There is hope that maybe something is about to change. And there's this theme that we find throughout the Gospels, or throughout the whole Bible, and particularly throughout the book of Genesis that I I find here right at the beginning of this story. It's a theme that you'll notice uh, in all your favorite stories is a theme that you notice particularly in the in the Gospels as as Jesus turns the paradigms of this world on their head. Um, and it's a theme that begins back in Genesis chapter 3. And that theme is the complete and utter failure of man juxtaposed to the unexpected grace of God. The complete and utter failure of man and the unexpected grace of God. There is something that happens over and over again, particularly in the book of Genesis, where man gets this hope that they're going to once and for all be done with the fall. That there is this one man that's going to make things right, that's going to bring about change, that's going to set things right between God and man. And that man utterly fails. And then they hope on another man and that man fails. And they hope on another man and that man fails. But mingled in those failures is the grace of God to show that what they expected was wrong all along. That He was going to be the one to bring about their salvation. It begins, like I said, in chapter 3, verse 15, in the pronouncement of curses on the serpent and the woman and the man. In the midst of the curse on the serpent, uh, God tells the serpent that he will put enmity between he and the woman and between her, his seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, when you read that, you get this idea that there's, even in the midst of the curse, even in the midst of man's failure, there is this promise of God, this unexpected grace, that there would come a seed of the woman that would destroy the curse of Satan and set all things right. And it continues in the covering that, that God provides for Adam and Eve. Remember, after they fell, they recognized that they were naked and they go and they get fig leaves. Now, I don't know if you've ever picked figs, but of all the leaves to choose in all of the garden, figs were not the leaves to pick. But they make fig leaves as an, make clothes out of fig leaves in an effort to cover their sin and they fail miserably because they cannot hide from God. But even in that failed attempt to get rid of their sin, God still kills an animal and covers their sin for them. You see it in the Mark of Cain that we read about here. You see it in the Ark for Noah as men are doing whatever they want and they are living the lives that they want and God brings judgment on all the earth. And yet, even in that judgment, He saves Noah and his family. You see it in the blessing of Abraham in a pagan land where they worship the moon god. God calls out one man to be the promise, to to fulfill the promise to the world. You see it in the protection of Jacob and you see it even in the elevation of Joseph. 
Over and over again, you have this theme of the utter failure of man to do anything for himself, to do anything to save himself, and yet the unexpected grace of God. But the story of Cain and Abel is the first snapshot, the first picture of that recurring theme. Cain and Abel are also the first glimpse of something that Martin Luther called the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. Um, I've been listening along with you to uh, Rob's sermons through the book of Matthew, and one thing that keeps hitting me over and over again, uh, especially in Matthew 21, is this theme of Jesus versus the Pharisees, or Jesus versus the religious leaders in general. And what you have are these two different theologies. The theology of glory, the theology of personal glory, quite literally, that through the law, through obedience to the law, we can somehow earn God's favor, we can earn the right to be called children of God, versus the theology of the cross pictured perfectly in Jesus Christ Himself, who was willing to go and to die to pay the full penalty of our sins. And you have that that theme recurring throughout Scripture where there are those that think, hey, I can just pull myself up by my own bootstraps if I try hard enough, if I do well enough, then surely I will earn the favor of God versus those who say, woe is me, a sinner. I'm deserving of nothing but your wrath. And yet God shows them them His grace. You have those themes wrapped up and beginning with the story of Cain and Abel. And like I said in verse 1, Eve bears her son, and notice what she says again, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Oh, the hope in that. Yes, we're under a curse. Yes, we're under the judgment of God. Yes, I will face pain and childbirth. Yes, I will face suffering and even death. But we will go on. This this boy, this man is going to deliver us. We're going to go on. He's going to be the continuing of the human race. And maybe even so, there's the possibility that this child might be the one to crush the head of the serpent. This might be right here, right now, the fulfillment of that promise. After all, she doesn't say, notice, I have gotten a child by the help of the Lord. She says, I have gotten a man by the help of the Lord. Her hope is wrapped up in this boy. Her hope is wrapped up in her firstborn. And not only that, but in verse 2, we find out that Cain has the profession that God ordained in the garden. Remember the command that God gives to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Make a garden out of it. Tend the garden. Care for it. Cain is doing exactly what God commanded him to do, what he commanded his dad to do in the garden. But there's a problem. We're not in the garden anymore. We're outside of the garden. We're in the wilderness. There may be great hope in Cain, but Cain is a sinner. In fact, Cain is the prototype 
for every sinner that would ever come after him. Cain is the perfect example of what all sinners are. And there are two characteristics of this prototype of sinner that I want you to notice in Cain. The first is a sinner has arrogance about his position before God. Now there are two places that, uh, that we find this arrogance of Cain. Notice verse 3 with me. Verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fatted portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. In verse 3, we find that uh, we, uh, we find that Cain brought an offering to God, but the problem, there's a problem with this offering. There's a problem with this offering for two reasons that I want you to notice. And I want you to notice that there's a distinction between the offering that Cain brought and the offering that Abel brought in what they brought. Notice it says that Cain brought of the ground... And Abel brought of the firstborn of the flock. Now, I don't know if you have the opportunity to garden. I, I like to garden uh, not so much because I'm good at it, but just because I like the experience. I like the knowledge that I gain from it. And uh, my grandfather gardened and he was perfect at it. And my dad gardens and he, he cannot fail at gardening. But I have to really work to garden. Um, every year there's some failure that I have in the garden and I just, every year I almost give up on it altogether. But one of the things that I'm determined to grow because my grandfather was a, a master at it is tomatoes. I love tomatoes. I like to just slice them, salt them and eat them raw. I, I, I enjoy them. And so I, I, I'm thinking I will grow a perfect tomato just like my grandfather did. And year after year after year, I fell miserably. And a couple of years back, I finally had gotten the plants to grow just right. And things were looking good. And I was having great success with the, with the garden altogether. And I kept watching these beautiful green tomatoes that were coming on the vine. And I thought, well, this is the year. I'm going to make it. I'm going to get to enjoy tomatoes from my own garden. But there are these little demons that are called horned caterpillars. They're about two and a half, three inches long. I find all caterpillars repulsive. But they are, they are especially repulsive because they look just like a tomato leaf. I don't know if you've ever seen one. If you can see it, you're doing good. But they will get on your tomatoes and you will never know they are there until they have gnawed the thing halfway to the root. And not only do they do that, but they take that perfect green turning orange tomato and they get on the bottom of it and they just start eating and eating and eating until they have eaten that whole tomato up. And so I go out one day and I go to look and observe my beautiful 
well-formed tomatoes and find half of them gone. And one that I was particularly looking forward to was half eaten. And I can imagine Cain having that same experience as a gardener, as a farmer, going out to his field and some of his tomatoes looking good and some of his tomatoes being half eaten by tomato worms or, or horned caterpillars, some of his squash being eaten up by cut worms. And I don't know if Cain did this, but I just imagine him saying, that'll do for God. You know, God's not going to eat this anyway. We're just going to burn it up. So what's the point in giving to God the, the best of my offering? What's the point in doing that when I can just give him what, what's left over? I can just take that and give it to him. Cain gives the quality of the offering that Cain gives is totally different than the quality of the offering that Abel gives. Notice Abel brings of the firstborn of his flock, but Cain brings the dregs. He just brings of the, of the ground. And notice there's a difference in the type of offering that Cain brings. Cain brings a tithe. He brings just some stuff, just of the ground, stuff that I thought you might like. Whereas Abel brings, and we'll talk more about this in just a little bit, Abel brings a sacrifice. Abel brings a lamb to offer to the Lord. You see, Cain assumes that everything is a-okay with God. Cain is coming from the perspective that we're still in the garden. I'm still okay with God. Things are just copacetic. Everything is all right. Sure, I owe a little bit to God. Sure, I can bring a tithe every once in a while. I can bring a sacrifice every once in a while. But as the country song says, me and God are doing just fine. Me and God are doing all right. We're okay. There's no reason for God to be angry with me. There's no reason for His wrath to be upon me. I'm just fine. And boy, is that attitude prevalent in our culture today. We have this same attitude that Cain had towards God. We come with arrogance to Him, assuming that our default destination is heaven. That we deserve to be in heaven because we're us. Why would God not like us? We have uh, 550 friends on Facebook. We, we're an Auburn fan. Sorry, Alabama fans. You know, we, we, we have all the right things lined up for us in the world. Why would anybody not like us? And certainly, why would God not like us? After all, God really just exists for our own benefit anyway. He's just there to make us happy. He's just there to make us wealthy. He's just there to give us our best life that we can have right here and right now. That's all that God exists for anyway. And so we come with that same arrogance that Cain comes to God with, assuming that really it doesn't matter what we offer. It doesn't matter the quality and it doesn't matter the type of offering because we deserve to be there Anyway, second way that I want you to notice his arrogance is in verses 5 and then verse 14 and 16. In verse 5, God has just uh, rejected his offering and it says that Cain's 
face has fallen. And then in verse 14 and 16, God pronounces judgment on Cain. And Cain, instead of repenting, instead of uh, believing God and confessing his sin and turning to God, Cain whines. He complains about the, the severity of the curse that God has pronounced on him. Cain rejects God's judgment. Instead of asking what was wrong with his offering and right with Abel's, he became angry with God through Abel. And we find no evidence of Cain ever considering God's warning against killing his brother. We find no evidence of his repentance and his turn, his guilt or his shame. Cain had an arrogance against God, an arrogance before God. That only a sinner can have. Secondly, a sinner has anger towards true righteousness. Cain, like all sinners, ultimately despises the law of God, and therefore he despises the one who is obedient to it. Jesus warns his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 18 If the wor world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Cain, instead of understanding God's command, instead of under, looking to his brother as an example of righteousness, instead of looking to his brother and even asking his brother, brother, what did I do wrong? Why did you come in faith? How is it that you understood this? He instead grows angry with his brother because of God's judgment. And instead of doing what he should have done in obedience to God, he does the exact opposite. And then notice verse 7 and 8, the culmination of that anger against God and against the righteousness of God. In verse 7 it says, Then the eyes of... Oh, sorry. Flipped the page too far. Um, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now there's an interesting wordplay that is done here, and I don't know if you notice it, but notice in verse 7, the warning that God gives to Cain is, watch out for sin. Sin is crouching at the door, waiting for you. The idea here is of a lion or even a snake that is waiting at the entrance of a cave. And as that prey comes through the entrance of the cave, that, that animal pounces and slaughters that prey. And then notice what Abel does, I mean what Cain does, the very next verse, without the least bit of consideration for what God has told him. It says that he calls his brother. And when his brother came out to the field, he what? He rose up. He pounced. He jumped on his brother. Cain becomes the sin that he was commanded to master. And in so doing, he kills the example of righteousness instead of following him. You know, we do this ourselves. We do this often in the way that we belittle the pious. I find it interesting that a lot of times we will look at 
good works that someone is doing in the Lord's name. And instead of going and serving with that person, we find plenty of excuses as to why what they're doing is either wrong or ill-advised. You know, you're just, you're just uh, enabling people to be poor. You're just, uh, you're just uh, you know, putting a Band-Aid on something that's much worse than that. And oftentimes, instead of doing what God has commanded, we belittle the people that are actually doing it. We can be like Cain in the way we grow angry at those who are truly exercising righteousness. But there's hope in this passage as well. And I want, to see, I want you to see it in the second point of my sermon. And that is, I want you to see the first act of faith. Now there's a sharp contrast that is even given in the names that are given to Cain and Abel. Cain's name means to bring forth. It's an it's a, a artisan's term. It is used to speak of people that make stuff. Cain is a man's man. And he has a man's man's name, if that's right. He, he is, he is a, a maker. He's a doer. He's an engineer. He's a creator. He's, he's the right stuff. Abel's name means breath. Abel's, the idea behind Abel's name is the idea of a fleeting, passing breath. And in fact, you even get that in the text. I want you to notice the contrast between what Abel does and what Cain does. Abel really only does one thing. He brings an acceptable sacrifice. But then he's killed and never really mentioned again. But instead, Cain, in contrast, Cain makes an offering talks with God, kills his brother, marries, has children, and even builds a city. There is way more said about Cain than there is said about Abel. But I want you to understand that this is the point of Abel's example and Abel's life. Abel was accepted not because of his name, not because of his work or his legacy, Abel was accepted because of his faith. Abel was accepted because he understood his position before God and he understood the need for a sacrifice. And there are two aspects of Abel's offering, the one thing that he did in this whole story that I don't want us to miss today. If you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at verse 4. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. There are two aspects from this text that I want you to notice about Abel's sacrifice. The first that I want you to know about, notice about Abel's sacrifice is Abel's offering was an expression of faith. 
The writer to the Hebrews says that Abel made his offering in faith. While Eve and Cain both believed that Cain would be the answer to the curse, that he would be the man who would come and he would set things right, that he would uh, be the creator, the maker, the engineer, the one that would fix things for the world. Yet Abel believed the promise of God that there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so he comes to make his offering in faith. Just like all the other members of the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, Abel looked forward to the fulfillment of the promise of God in Jesus Christ. The second thing I want you to notice about Abel's offering is that Abel's offering was evidence of a need. Notice the writer, of the writer to the Hebrews doesn't just say that he had faith. He says, by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. This faith led to a right understanding of his offering. Cain assumed that everything was A-OK between him and God. That all he had to do was bring a little bit of his, his garden, maybe a little bit of the wormy stuff, or maybe it was good stuff, I don't know. But all he had to do was just bring a little free will offering. And Abel realized that much more was needed than a tithe. Much more was needed than just a little head nod to God for all his many blessings. Abel knew what the law would later reveal. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Abel's offering was a blood sacrifice that acknowledged his guilt and need for a Savior. Now there's a nasty habit that we have when we come to Scripture. A nasty habit that we have when we read a story like this of Cain and Abel, where we root for ourselves in the story of Abel, and we don't see ourselves in the story of Cain. We read ourselves as the hero in the story. Perhaps you're thinking, okay, I just need to master my sin and not be like Cain. Perhaps you're thinking, I just need to have a better attitude when I come to worship next Sunday. That's, that's how I can fix this. Perhaps you are thinking, I need to be more like Abel and less like Cain. But friend, you are not Abel in this story. You're Cain. If you are still trying to appease God with your meager offerings, hoping that maybe He will like you or accept you, you are Cain, not Abel. If you are trying to master your sin, all the while failing to recognize that there is none righteous, no, not one, then you are Cain, not Abel. Oh, but take heart. Yes, you are Cain, but Jesus is a better Abel. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, while Abel offered a sacrifice in acknowledgement of his need for a Savior, Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for you and me. 
Abel was hated and killed by his brother, but Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, tried by both his kinsmen and the world as a criminal and crucified and facing the judgment of God on our behalf. Today, will you repent of your sins and trust in the one perfect sacrifice? Will you confess that you are no longer in the garden? You are an outcast in need of forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, this passage should be a reminder to us that the only acceptable offering we can give is one of repentance and faith. Be careful, careful, brothers and sisters, that you do not let the influence of this world teach you the, the theology of glory over against the theology of the cross. Be careful that you have not allowed this week for the idea of your deservedness before God to seep into your mind and to think that somehow you, yes, you are part of the elect, you are part of God's church, but you are not part of it because of Christ and His good gift, but you are there because you are white or because you are an American, or because you are born of a certain family lineage, or because you have done the right things this week according to what Presbyterians say you ought to do. Be careful that you do not think like Cain that presume some arrogance before God that you somehow deserve your place in heaven because of what you have done. It is not by any work that you have done, not by any offering that you could give, but by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that you stand before Him today redeemed. And it is to that we give Him all praise and glory for what He has done. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know You as the gracious God who does, in fact, turn everything on its head. Lord, you lift, up Cain, you lift up Abel and you bring low Cain. The one that we would, would place all hope and all faith in, you expose as a rank sinner just like the rest of us. And the one who would be named such an insignificant name you would esteem as the man of faith. Father, we come in that same humility today to confess that it is nothing of us that would earn your favor, that your favor is completely and totally unmerited, that we cannot gain entrance into your heaven because of anything that we have done, because of our name because of our position, because of our profession, but only because of what you have done in Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for our tendency towards Cain. Forgive us even as believers for thinking that we could somehow deserve a little extra grace because of what we have done. Give us repentance and faith to trust in you as Abel did and rest and what you have done in Christ. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.